Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. Dr. Richard Alston joins the show again today. The last episode that we did together, we focused the conversation in on the transition that Rome went through from a republic to an empire, and one of the prominent figures in that conversation was Mark Antony. That episode was published, I believe it was March 23rd of this year, so 2021. So in this particular conversation, we're going to focus in on the life of Mark Antony and uh, get a better understanding of what scholars know about the early period of his life, his uh, adulthood and career, and the later period of his life, including his death. Dr. Alston is professor and head of the Classics Department at Royal Holloway University of London, based in the UK. He specializes in Roman history with a career that spans over several decades now at this point. And he's the author of several books, including a couple as examples. Rome's Revolution, Death of the Republic and Birth of the Empire, which was published by Oxford University Press. And Aspects of Roman History, 31 BC to AD 117, which was published by Routledge. Welcome back on the show, Richard. It's nice to be back, Andrew. It's great to have you back, Richard. Okay, so we're chatting about the... Roman general and statesman Mark Antony from the past. And let's start with uh, more of a broad uh, overview question that allows uh, a bit of a summary as context, and then we can work our way into what's known about his life. How would you summarize who Mark Antony was? Mark Antony was a leading Roman statesman and politician at the end of the Republic. And he presided over uh, the death rites of that republic as a general, uh, as a politician, uh, and then as somebody who became one of the three great men of Rome in the transition between republic and empire. And of course, we know him through his uh, relationship with uh, Cleopatra, which has been the stuff of legends, films, and uh, fashion uh, for generations. Okay, so that creates a good context and we'll work or work our way through these stages. Uh, the early period of his life, I know that uh, sometimes historical figures, there's scant um, evidence that uh, gets left over about very particular parts of the person's life. So let us know what's known and what, what's not known. Um, what's known about when and where he was born? We know he was born in 83. We've got a date of birth for him. We don't really know where he's born. He's born to one of the leading families of Rome uh, at the times, the Antonii. And his father was uh, Marcus Antonius Creticus. He's called Creticus because of his involvement with Crete. Uh, and he was killed in Crete fighting pirates in, in 71 BCE. His mother was Julia, uh, and she's a, a remote relative of Julius Caesar. Um, they're not, they're, they're a, a prominent, important uh, political family. As with most Roman families, we know really very little about the origins, uh, about the early years of the youths of the family. We only get sources about them or discussions about them when they start to appear on the, on the political stage. Romans aren't really interested in how the young politicians grew up. They expected them to have wild lives, um, 
to, to party them mm. to the party away until they get into their 20s. When they get in their 20s, they start to get military appointments. And then it's in their 30s they start to have a kind of political prominence where they become respectable men. There was also no Facebook back then where the people are leaving these uh, stories as well themselves. No, there's no Facebook. <laughs> there's, there's nothing that would... would uh, produce this uh, kind of trail of bad information that, that followed people. But there's quite a lot of invective in Roman uh, literature. So the Romans didn't have libel laws in the way that we have libel laws. So if you dislike someone, you can always accuse them of being having a really raucous youth. And uh, Mark Antony was accused of being uh, a, a man about town, drinking a lot, having lots of affairs, engaging with respectable Roman women, and a lot of um, non-respectable uh, Roman women, uh, uh, very much a party animal, who supposedly ran through his fortune to the extent that he decided it would be more politic to go and spend some time in Greece, uh, learning things about Greek culture than stay in Rome uh, at the mercy of his creditors. So is it known, did he end up going to Greece for his education? Yeah, again, that's a fairly standard part of a Roman elite male's education. They get educated in Rome, they may have tutors, they may go to an elementary form of school. Uh, but once they start to reach their late teenage years, they often travel. Uh, and they often travel to Athens, especially, where they get an education in things like public speaking, uh, philosophy. And I suspect they had a really nice time. Uh, as as well. What's known or supposed about his religious orientation? Roman religion works a bit differently from the religions we're more used to, uh, especially those of us within a kind of Abrahamic tradition. Um, religious belief uh, is not something that the Romans talked about very much nor did they tend to divide religions into kind of ethnic categories, um, such as, again, we, we, we tend to do. So Antony would have worshipped all the Roman gods and he'd have worshipped any other gods that, that he, he, he came across. In this period, there's quite a lot of scepticism about, about deities, but people perform the rituals. Uh, Antony himself becomes a, a priest quite early on. He's an augur, so he's supposedly able to tell the future from looking at the flight of birds. Uh, and he also served in, uh, as a priest in an archaic Roman ritual, the Lupercal, where uh, Roman young men would dress up in wolf skins and run about the streets of Rome and hit uh, appropriately um, nubile uh, young women with bits of those wolf skins in order to uh, ascertain or to guarantee uh, the fertility of, of those women. Again, another sense of riotous uh, religious activity. Um, belief doesn't seem to fall into the, the categories here. It was just customs that everybody followed. Okay, so in the wolfskins practice that you described there, you're saying that wasn't necessarily a, a ritual? It is a ritual, but it's a party as well. It's part of the kind of customs of Rome, which go back all the way to the foundation of Rome with, with, with Romulus and, and Remus. Um, it's not a, a devout religious uh, activity, uh, nor is it something you would 
you would say, represented identity in the same way we talk about someone being a Christian or a Muslim or a Hindu, which means something about their identity. I think the Romans would have been confused by that question. Uh, there were some people who worshipped the gods, however they came across those gods. If those gods happened to be Greek gods or Egyptian gods or Roman gods, well, they're all the same in one sort of way. Um, it's not. It doesn't work in the same identity politics way in which we conceive it. You mentioned he was in training to become an auger. Is it known if he actually ever became an auger, if if there is a point um, back then when that actually occurs, when you're anointed, if, if you will? And then can you speak about what's known then, if he wants to be an auger, what, do, you, do you believe or is there evidence that that was a life goal? Because I'm sure that's not something you just take on for a couple of years and then cease doing. Um, and then how did he go from training or becoming an auger to towards more of a political and uh, militaristic um, career? Again, we have to think about it in rather different ways than we think about modern priesthoods. Mm -hmm. uh, the Romans represented themselves to the gods through their political elite. So the leading men of the state would be the people who represented Rome to the gods, as they would be the men who represented Rome on, on the battlefield. So Antony was made uh, an augur, probably by appointment by the other augurs who sat in a little committee and decided who would be nice to have an augur. There is no reason to believe he was remotely interested in augury uh, or had any training in it or had any particular views. Uh, he was just selected because he was a prominent Roman in the right place at the right time. Once he becomes an auger, they then tell him what to do. You, you point sticks into the sky, you divide your sky into quarters, and then you look for the birds, and then you get inspired to interpret what's, what's, what goes on. We know he practiced. We know he practiced because at one point he falls out with Julius Caesar, and Julius Caesar wants to appoint a consul. Um, and uh, because Antony uh, disagrees with this, he says the auguries that he takes uh, are... are a badly omened, uh, inauspicious, and therefore the appointment shouldn't be made. Julius Caesar ignores him in a Julius Caesar type, type of way. Um, but it is just part of the kind of general customs of a Roman aristocrat that they might take on these, these, these priestly posts. Julius Caesar, for example, uh, was Pontifex Maximus, which is roughly the equivalent of a chief priest uh, in, in Rome. Um, that he did that alongside being a general, alongside being a, a prominent politician. Has anything been left in the archival records about any predictions that Mark Antony would have made as an augur? No, there's nothing that uh, in, in, in detail. It's really a process of deciding whether the gods are favorable to you or not favorable to you. Um, and you can quite see that if something is happening you don't like, you go up and you look at the sky, uh, you can see things in that sky which suggest that the gods are on your side uh, rather than on the side of your political opponents. Okay, so let's move towards his adulthood. Um, any sense of how old he would have been when he, w when he was an auger? In any sense, how many years? That would have been ge generally, if you have to estimate. He'd have, been, he'd have been in his 30s um, when, when he would take on that role. I'm glad I asked because I presumed it would have been more like late teens or 
early 20s or something like that. No, it, it's not a vocational thing. It's something that comes along with your development of your, your, your political career. Okay. Can you speak more about his political career then and his adulthood? Yeah. So he goes off to Greece. He's uh, engaged uh, in Greece, probably having a nice time, comes back to Rome. He then hangs around with the, the Roman politician Clodius, who's a bit of a rabble rouser in, in the 60s. And then in, in 57, he starts to become uh, more prominent, more serious. And he, he begins his first military appointments. So he goes off as a kind of cavalry commander to Syria uh, with the Roman general Gabinius. And there they engage in, in various campaigns in Syria, and that takes him to Egypt in, in 55, which is his first of many visits to Egypt. Having served successfully with Gabinius in Syria, he comes back to Rome, uh, and Caesar immediately takes him out under his wing, and he goes off to fight in the conquest of Gaul in, 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 in 54. So this mm-hmm. is his early uh, military career. Uh, and then he's reached the appropriate age uh, of uh, 13, 31, uh, and he stands for his first political office, which is a very minor role, that of a quaestor. Uh, and once he's appointed quaestor, he's sent back to Gaul uh, to help help Julius Caesar. And then you see a, a combination of military and political functions that marks the rest of his career. Okay, so let's uh, so let's expand on on that then. Let's 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 di- really dive into his political career so he's in his early 30s um how does he get to a point of being um one of the three people that are ruling rome these are really turbulent times julius caesar has just conquered gaul he's opposed to many people in the senate including the great general pompey Antony attaches himself to, to Caesar and he begins to his political office after 52 as, as quaestor. He's then a few years later, he's made a tribune of the plebs. Uh, and in 49, he's in Rome as tribune when Caesar and Pompey are moving towards civil war. In the negotiations that ensue, uh, Antony represents Caesar's position and mm-hmm. comes out as a loyalist for Caesar. Pompey drives him out of Rome and he returns to, to Caesar in Gaul. And together with Caesar, they then cross the Rubicon, leading to the outbreak of civil war. In that civil war, Antony is Caesar's right-hand man. He's, he's, he's his junior general. He commands forces at the crucial battle of Pharsalus. He is uh, a, a major figure in the campaign that leads to Caesar becoming dictator and um, taking control over the city. When Caesar becomes dictator in Rome, you always appoint a deputy, and he appoints Antony as, depu- as his deputy. Kind of, guy, the title is the, ma- the Magister Equitum, uh, the, magi- the, the Master of Horse. Um, mm-hmm. And he holds that position for a couple of years uh, before Caesar gives the post to, to someone else. And at that point, there's a sort of falling out between uh, Antony and, uh, and and Caesar. 
but they patch up again um, and by 45 he's again working working with Caesar in, in, in Gaul and in 44 Caesar makes him consul so he's then consul's leading magistrate in, in Rome Caesar's preparing to head off to, to Parthia to, to fight the Parthians at this point he's gathered a large army in Greece which he's about to join and then on the Ides of March he accidentally gets himself stabbed to death um, leaving Rome in an anarchic situation. And it's at this point that Antony emerges as the leader of the Caesarian group and as the dominant figure in the city of Rome. Okay, so before we spend more time in this next stage, what's known, if anything, about why Caesar took a liking to Mark Antony? And do we know anything about uh, why they had a feud that had their relationship be strained for a while and, and how it got and why it was um, reconciled? It's almost certainly the military competence uh, that Antony showed. He was an inspired military commander and he shows that throughout his career. He has really good relationships with his troops. He's able to uh, get his troops to do more or less what he wants whenever he wants it. Uh, and his career is filled with, with episodes of great military success. I'm sure that Caesar saw that potential, uh, those leadership skills. Um, after the kind of military phase of, of the Civil War, um, Caesar was looking to bring more people into his circle to expand his political base. And that's probably why he turned away from, from Antony. And Antony was clearly expecting to receive more political honours, for his career to move from stage to stage, and to be perpetually at the right-hand side of, of, of Caesar. Uh, and that seems to be what leads to them having a quarrel in the mid-40s and to be a cool with the relationship. But it clearly did not last particularly long because he's, he's back in 45 with Caesar, engaged in military activity and then he's given this prestigious consulship in, in, in 44. This might take an interpretive answer. Um, do you have any sense of why Mark Antony chose to align with Julius Caesar versus aligning with Pompey? Throughout his career Antony tended to not align himself with the establishment. Now, all these figures are aristocrats in one way or another. They're all connected up uh, into familial lines, but those familial lines sometimes determine the way in which people move politically. So his friendships, his associations tend to be with the more disruptive elements within the Roman political hierarchy, whereas Pompey's friendships and alignments tended to be within the more conservative elements of the Roman political hierarchy. So, for instance, the Roman politician Cicero always finds himself attracted to Pompey and to Pompey's side. Now, Antony and Cicero were hostile almost from the beginning of their associations. So Antony is a party animal, the a uh, person who broke conventions, the person who was looking to disrupt in many ways, sat against those more conservative 
staid politicians. And so Caesar was a much more natural person for him to look to than the conservative Pompey. You mentioned, too, that his mother, I believe you mentioned a distant um, family member. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, would that, do you think that would have influenced uh, his allegiance to Julius Caesar and more generally in Rome in this period of time? Did family, families um, naturally develop intrinsically that kind of loyalty or were there a lot of cases of you know, one cousin perhaps being on one side, another cousin being on the other. Can you maybe share more that kind of dynamic in Rome in that in, in this period? Yeah, well, Romans work through social networks, and probably the social networks that we're, we're familiar with are quite good metaphors for how Romans work. So they connected up, they made friendships. Friendship, amicitia, is the glue of Roman society, especially amongst its aristocratic groups. And marriage was based upon friendships, often between the, the men and uh, the, the family. Now, there's always a limit to that. So where does a network of friendship end? And where does someone become someone you once met? Um, and Julia, uh, who was the mother of uh, Julius Caesar, is, I think, a third cousin. So really quite remote uh, in family lines. So you can't make too much of it. Though that may have been a way in which the, the, a connection was, was made later on what we see is that marriage later on in Nancy's life we see that marriage is a really important way in which he he makes political arrangements and makes uh, and, and takes a political stance his third wife Fulvia is a really major political figure who is associated like I mentioned earlier Clodius is someone who who's a, a rabble rouser in the streets of Rome and she had been Clodius's wife until Clodius is killed Antony marries her, um, and some of that political legacy associated with Clodius is transferred with Fulvia uh, to to Antony as, as a result. Um, so marriage is part of this network building, uh, which creates Roman political factions. Okay, um, so I want to go uh, back to where we uh, kind of uh, pinned in the storyline here him I believe he said leading a, a Caesarian uh, the Caesarian group um, and I do want to visit at some point uh, the marriages in his life and what's known about children but I think we can set that aside for now and revisit it uh, shortly because there's obviously the the very uh, pop, uh, famous relationship that he had with Cleopatra as well in his life and we'll obviously cover that as well so let's um Okay, so here's yeah, here's what I'd like to know about the the marriage. We can probably bring a little bit of it in. Um, so this by the time that he's leading the Caesarian group, had he been married at that point? How many times, and and did he have any children? Yeah, he's married twice uh, before that. Uh, first wife we don't really know much about, and the second wife we know again very little about. There seems to be one child from that marriage who who died young. He then marries uh, Fulvia, and they have two children together. Um, later on, he has children with Cleopatra. Do you get any sense if um, he was remarrying to produce heirs for his estate or re remarrying for political strategic purposes or some blend of both? Probably not for us. He already had an heir uh, to his estate. So when he's marrying Fulvia, 
uh, he's marrying for well, they may have been attracted to each other and there are stories that they had an adulterous relationship long before they can come to marriage but the marriage is uh, a, a political marriage it's a social event uh, and it brings Fulvia and her social circle into Antony's social circle and that forms part of this network of power and Fulvia is a really important figure in manipulating those networks of power in order to support Antony's political ambitions. So uh, in 40, uh, when Antony is away in the East and actually in dalliance, to put it politely, uh, with Cleopatra, it's Fulvia who represents Antony's political interests in Rome. And that's a perfectly normal way in which Roman men and women organize the relationship. Roman men were often away fighting engaged in business and in the being away and engaged in business the household and the kind of roman political business was then conducted by their wives and they saw themselves very much as a partnership running the affairs for their children and for their household their statuses were very much caught up together okay and did you say then back to the caesarean group did you say he was leading a or the caesarean group and if so uh can you take it from there yeah, so in, in 44, Julius Caesar is killed. Uh, and so there are a lot of people who've been uh, supportive of Julius Caesar, or had, whose fortunes have been tied to Julius Caesar, particularly the soldiers who had served with Julius Caesar, who are now looking for someone to represent their interests. And when Caesar's will is read, it, it becomes clear that Caesar was a friend of the ordinary people. He gives lots of his money to those ordinary people ordinary people and there's a move against the uh, assassins and they look for political leadership and that's what Antony immediately provides as Caesar's most experienced political associate he garners the support of at least some of those uh, veterans uh, he gradually brings Caesar's troops back from um, from Greece where they've been assembling to go off to Parthia and he builds up popular support but he has a problem because Caesar did not leave a male heir. And so what Caesar did in his will, he adopted a cousin, uh, nephew uh, by the name of Gaius Octavius. And he becomes Octavian Caesar. And he's 18 at the time. He's a political nobody. He's not from a particularly prominent family. Nobody takes him terribly seriously. Antony doesn't take him terribly seriously. But when he comes to Rome, he asserts himself as Caesar's heir, not just his heir to his private estates, but his political heir as well, and represents himself as the person who is going to avenge Caesar's death. And garners support amongst some of the veterans and amongst some of the plebs and, produce, and becomes, in that instance, a rival to Antony. Not one that Antony, as an experienced politician, is going to take terribly seriously. Not one that Antony is, sees initially in 44 as someone who can actually garner enough support to undermine his, his, his leadership. But Antony's other problem is that the Senate hates him. And the Senate turned to Octavian as a potential leader of the Caesarian group, as a counterweight to Antony. 
And this creates then these two poles in Roman society, in Roman politics. Antony and his group of Caesareans, and the senators with Octavian and his group of Caesareans, and they move in 44, late 44, to civil war. What's known about why the Senate body wasn't in favor of Mark Antony? When Caesar was assassinated, he was assassinated because he was dictator and he was thought to be a threat to the senatorial control over Rome. The assassins thought that by removing Caesar, they would return to the status quo before Caesar's dictatorship, meaning their control and the Republican form of government. Caesar was for them the block. In the aftermath of Caesar's assassination, it becomes clear that matters were not quite so simple. There were a lot of people who regarded the senatorial assassination as a political crime. A leading member of the Roman aristocracy and the Roman people had been murdered without trial. Antony's position was difficult at this point. Some people wanted to remove him as well as being a potential threat to Roman senatorial control. And Cicero, who was his previous great enemy, also mobilized the Roman Senate and Roman senatorial opinion against Antony while he was consul. So from March 44 to the end of 44, when Antony laid down his consulship, there is a story of uh, increasing political tension between the senators and the assassins and Mark Antony that occasionally boiled over into street violence. By the end of 44, uh, the assassins had gone east and were gathering troops. And Antony had an armed force in, in Italy, which had been gathered from Caesar's veterans and the legionaries he'd uh, assembled to go and fight in Parthia. So both sides at that point were armed and ready for civil war. When Julius Caesar was assassinated, was Mark Antony consul at that point? Yeah, he was consul at that point. So he's the leading magistrate in Rome. Uh, effectively, he is the guy, in the absence of the dictator, who should take over the organs of government. And that's what he does. And when you say and the... that's why he becomes a really important political player in the immediate aftermath. He's got to keep the lid on Rome. He's got to stop the plebs from rioting. He's got to make sure that the, the soldiers uh, are relatively happy uh, and don't mutiny. He's got money and he's got a senatorial group who he thinks, some of whom at least, wants him dead. And when you say the assassins go east, um, to put some names uh, to it so it can be uh, re referenced specifically, who would be the, the main uh, leaders? There's, there's three, three main players. Um, there's, there's Brutus uh, and Cassius, who we know of from Shakespeare. Uh, they go off to Syria. Um, and they start to gather troops in Syria, um, essentially take over the Eastern Roman Empire, uh, and then 
gather forces who they start to march towards the west. And then there's a guy called Decimus Brutus, who is different from the Junius Brutus we know about. And he uh, ends up in, uh, in northern Italy. Uh, and he barricades himself in northern Italy in the town of Mutina, uh, near Bologna. Um, and there he gathers forces in order to potentially oppose Antony. And I think you said Mark Antony at this point is in Italy, um, uh, the peninsula, uh, yeah. uh, right? Um, modern day uh, uh, terms in, in, in Italy. Um, so he wasn't in Rome, though, at this point in time. He was somewhere else in the peninsula? He's mostly in Rome, uh, but Caesar's legions are in northern Greece. Uh, and he finds an excuse to bring those legions back uh, from Greece, and they land at Brindisi uh, in, on, in, the, in the toe of Italy. So he then goes down to Brindisi, and he gathers the forces from Brindisi, and he begins to march them up uh, through Italy. Um, at the same time, he's popping in and out of Rome because he's a Rome senior magistrate, um, but he's peripatetic. He, he's moving from, from place to place. Uh, eventually, it's quite clear he intends to go to northern Italy, defeat Decimus Brutus, and uh, develop his own uh, military territorial base there with which he can negotiate with the Senate and indeed with the assassins. Okay. Can you speak next then about how we go from this stage to Mark Antony being one of three people ruling Rome? Okay, so the, the position is now really complex. At one stage, there are six different armies wandering about in, in Italy uh, under different commanders uh, and loyal to different forces. Antony uh, goes to Mutina. He fights Decimus Brutus there. Eventually, Octavian turns up with an army alongside two senatorial armies, and Mark Antony retreats. He heads into Gaul. When he arrives in Gaul, he seeks, to, he seeks support, he seeks political support. And the most important general in that area is a guy called Lepidus. Lepidus marches up from uh, southern Spain and southern Gaul, brings his legions into contact with Antony, and after some to and fro, they form an allegiance, rather against Lepidus's best wishes. That gives them military dominance, and they march then into, into northern Italy. At that point, Octavian changes sides. He defects, he falls out with the Senate, for really quite complicated reasons. And he marches on Rome and seizes Rome. You've now got three main armies. One which is led by, by Antony, one which is led by Lepidus in alliance, and one which is led by Octavian. Those three men are all loyal to, in varying degrees, to Julius Caesar, all opposed in various degrees to the assassins. And they form what's called the, the, the triumvirate, an alliance of three men with dictatorial powers who then come to uh, rule Rome from 43 through to 33 legally, and then on to the uh, onto 31 uh, when you get the Battle of Actium. Okay, so let's uh, it's work. It's going very linear, which is great. So let's keep working our way through um, uh, the, these periods here. So then he's one of three rulers, and historians call this the second triumvirate. 
yeah. usually, right? Okay. Um, how do we go from him being one of three rulers of Rome to him developing a romantic relationship with uh, Cleopatra and then eventually Mark Antony's death? Trevor are in charge uh, of Rome. They send out parties to assassinate uh, and murder the enemies across the across the city many people flee from uh, the, 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 the city of rome to avoid these death squads what they're preparing is a campaign against the assassins uh, and in 42 they march eastwards into greece in order to fight brutus and cassius at the battle of philippi uh, antony and octavian defeat Brutus and Cassius, and Brutus and Cassius eventually uh, commit suicide. Antony comes out as a kind of leading figure in that in that war, and the general who really wins the, the the battle. Octavian then goes back to Rome to try and settle matters in Rome uh, and to divide up uh, the territories of the Western Roman Empire between himself uh, and and Lepidus. Antony goes east. The east is in absolute chaos at this time. The Parthians have invaded. There's kings everywhere who are setting up their own independent kingdoms. Um, people who are loyal, or had been loyal to Brutus and Cassius, are revolting. The whole place is in chaos. So he's really got the short straw uh, in terms of how to take over a really chaotic area. But he mm. is the leading general of the time. And in 40, he meets. Uh, sorry, 41, he meets Cleopatra. Cleopatra is queen of Egypt at the time, and she is summoned to meet him in Asia Minor. And she uh, sails up the river in a golden barge. He's holding court in uh, a city. So he's in the center of the city. He's dealing with legal cases. People are coming to him with problems to be solved. He's the most important man in the entire of the Roman East. And he's sitting there and suddenly people start to leave. And he finds he's sitting there and the crowd has gone. And they've all gone down to the river. And what they say is that Aphrodite has come to meet Dionysus. Antony traces his descent ultimately to a kind of mythical connection to the god Dionysus. So he claims to be descended from the god Dionysus, who is also the god of wine. Cleopatra is associating herself with the Egyptian god Hassel, who's also associated with the Greek god Aphrodite. So Aphrodite has sailed up the river in a golden barge. Antony comes out of the city and meets her on her barge. Nine months later, Cleopatra gives birth to twins. Hmm. That story, did people actually think at that point in time in Asia Minor that there really was the two gods were, were, were there? Or is that a thought to believed, um, almost a narrative that Mark Antony or someone else created to uh, accentuate the meeting of Mark Antony and Cleopatra. 
There's two different answers to that. One, one is, is the uh, Greek-Egyptian answer. And the Greek-Egyptian answer, there is an identification between Cleopatra and the deities. To some extent, Cleopatra it is representative of those deities. So when she arrives in a place, although she is evidently human, she brings with her an association with those those deities. So yes, you could say that to in a metaphorical way, Aphrodite has turned up. Now for the Romans, that's not quite the same sort of idea. The Romans really regard these ideas as untrue, but they see some sort of mythic origins that are part of a kind of an imaginative world in the far distant time. So Antony is not literally the representation of the uh, god Dionysus. Uh, but he, in terms of representing Antony and representing the extraordinary position of Antony, and it comes, becomes much more important with Octavian later on, an association with the divine is used really frequently to elevate them above the everyday person. So as a prominent Roman politician of the Republic would be amongst his equals, amongst his peers, as we move into the imperial period, the emperors and the leading figures wanted to distinguish themselves from those peers and that was done through an association with of the spirit with the divine so the spirit was in some way divinized okay so the two of them meet cleopatra gives birth to a child nine yeah. months later Which Twins. Okay. Twins. So yeah. let's yeah, let's continue with this uh, sto uh, story, and it's it's in, it's incredible, not surprising, but it's incredible how much is is here. We could almost do an episode on one specific segment of these, you know, various uh, parts. So, so what so what happens next? We're working our way towards the Battle of Actium. The two of them um, are in a relationship. Do we did they officially get married and, as well? And if so. Uh, what occurred with Mark Antony's wife back in uh, Rome? Uh, a quarrel develops between Octavian and, uh, and Antony and Antony's supporters in Rome. And this happens in 40. And this is where Fulvio, who I mentioned earlier, represents uh, Antony's position. Antony goes back to, to Italy, which is, we've had another outbreak of civil war. And he lands in Brindisium, Octavian comes down, they're about to have an almighty bust up. But the soldiers who've been fighting together the previous year don't want to fight each other. So they bring the two people, uh, two men into peace and they patch up. At this point, or maybe just before this, Fulvia has died. Now, you might expect uh, that our dear Antony would do the honorable thing and would then marry Cleopatra but he doesn't. He marries Octavian's sister, Octavia, and that forms a political relationship between the two. And it's that point that he heads off to the east to try and quieten the east. 
Now, the point you raise about marriage is an interesting one. Were Antony and Cleopatra married? Uh, well, again, if we're thinking about this in terms of uh, kind of religious traditions of marriage, of which we are very used to, and the marriage being a sacrament in one way or another, um, then we're thinking about it the wrong way. Marriage was a social relationship which was embedded in law. Uh, and you might say that Cleopatra, as a foreigner, could not marry a, a Roman without specific legal provision being made. However, Cleopatra is a queen, and queens uh, are able to write their own law. Um, although there's no relationship, no immediate resumption of the relationship when uh, Antony comes east, gradually over the next years, they come to meet more and they come to have a relationship and that becomes the relationship a marital sort of relationship he is still married to octavia in roman law uh, throughout much of this period in egyptian eyes he's married to the queen um, it's not a entirely legally comfortable position uh, whatever the personal nature of the relationships uh, the, that uh, are at stake here but uh, law doesn't really come into it because she is the queen. Uh, and so she can, by mere act of will, make the children legitimate. And Antony, as a senior magistrate, can make the children legitimate as well. The fortunes are tied um, from really 38 onwards, although the Octavia is not divorced until 33. And a point of clarification for anyone that is wondering, uh, Egypt would have been a vassal state of Rome at this point, right? And Cle Cleopatra would have been a client queen of Rome? Well, in, in, in 55, uh, when Gabinius uh, had invaded Egypt, he appointed the king, who was a member of the Ptolemaic royal dynasty. When Caesar invades Egypt in 40... Um, uh, when does he invade Egypt? Mm -hmm. In uh, 47. Mm -hmm. uh, he sorts out a, a civil war between Cleopatra and, and her brother. And he appoints Cleopatra as, uh, as queen and fathers Cleopatra's first child. Uh, she is technically independent, but in political terms, uh, she and her father... Uh, have been politically um, have, re have needed Roman political support to maintain their position. During the civil wars, uh, Cleopatra gives her loyalty to Caesar and to the Caesareans and uses the resources of Egypt to support uh, the, the, the Caesareans. It's not a formal state of vassalage, so there's no formal process that's gone through. But Rome's the superpower. Rome decides what's going on, 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 on in Egypt, and Cleopatra knows that. Okay, so let's work our way into the later period of his life and eventual death. So Octavian's still in the scene. How do we get to the Battle of Actium? Octavian and Antony become the two dominant figures. Lepidus slips into increasing obscurity before he's removed uh, in, in 36. Uh, and they divide up the Roman world between them. Octavian controls the, the west, 
uh, uh, Antony controls the East. Antony is involved extensively in wars against the Parthians, and he brings the Parthians to, to peace in 33. Octavian is involved in putting down the pirate king, Sextus Pompeius, uh, and in campaigns in the West, which he brings to an end in, uh, in 33 as well. Probably coincidentally. At that point, there comes to be an issue as to how the Roman world is going to be run from 33 onwards. The triumvirate had been established for 10 years. That runs out. Who is going to rule? How are they going to rule? How is this going to be managed? Antony's in the east. He's involved with Cleopatra. And he holds a major political ceremony to celebrate his victory in Alexandria, in which he involves Cleopatra and her children. What he's doing is he's tying his fortunes to Cleopatra and he's showing that he's founding a dynasty with her that is going to be influential across the Roman East for however long. Octavian in Rome takes against this. He takes against what Antony is doing and he wants to preserve his own power in the West. And he seems to deploy some more conservative rhetoric suggesting that he might restore the Republic or at least a more Romano-centric form of government that Antony is going to do in the East. And the two of them move into a period of increased political tension. In 32, two of Antony's supporters are consuls at the time. This is the first moment in which the triumvirate is legally over. They come into the Senate in January 32 and they attack Octavian. Octavian comes into the Senate a little later in January. He brings his troops with him and the consuls flee. Political relations sour across the rest of 32. But it's not until late in 32 that suddenly they move towards war. And neither side seems to be ready for it. Octavian's not mobilized. Antony is not mobilized. But the division of empire between Alexandria and Rome is such that it seems to produce irreconcilable differences between the two. And in late 32, too late for any serious military action that year, they declare war on each other. What happens? What happened when? Oh, like, like next. Yeah, what happens after they uh, declare? What happens next? Yeah. What happens next? Um, well, Octavian garners all the resources of the West. He gathers his legions together. Antony collects his troops. Cleopatra has a fleet. Uh, they sail off uh, westwards. And they arrive at, at the Gulf of Actium uh, on the northwest uh, of modern Greece. Antony and Cleopatra put uh, the fleet in the in the Gulf. Octavian arrives uh, outside on the um, on the island of Lefkaza, and there's a standoff. And eventually, Antony decides he has to break out. He can't supply his troops. The troops are becoming diseased. They burn some of the ships that they don't need. 
Some of the troops set off to march over land to get to Athens. They come out. The whole plan is for Antony to get his fleet and his soldiers away from Lefkatha to go south, to go around to Athens, pick up his troops, uh, and then they can fight again. But Octavian, uh, with his Admiral Agrippa, catch his fleet there. They don't let them go. Mm. Cleopatra sees a moment. She thinks she can get away. They hoist sail, they go. Her flotilla disappears. Antony gets away, but the bulk of his fleet are trapped by Octavian, and they sink them in the Gulf of Actium. At that point, Antony has lost his fleet. He's effectively lost the war. Mm-hmm. Octavian soldiers uh, are caught in their retreat. They surrender, and everybody then sees that the writing is on the wall. Antony and Cleopatra are going to lose, and they defect. So all the client kings of the east, all the Roman who have provincial commands in the east, one by one, they defect to Octavian. And this leaves Antony and Cleopatra isolated in Egypt, waiting Octavian's arrival. And he then comes to arrive in 30. They spend the winter preparing for war, but they know they're going to lose. So they also spend the winter partying and you get some of the stories of excess um, that are associated with these two are located in this kind of nihilistic last days of, of Alexandria that creates a kind of romantic air about them. Eventually, Octavian turns up uh, on the east of Egypt. He marches uh, across Egypt. Antony comes out to meet him at a place called Pelusium, holds him off, then retreats to Alexandria. Uh, the f- Roman fleet arrives and Cleopatra sails that, or Cleopatra orders that fleet to sail out to meet the Romans. They're going to refight Actium, who's going to win? But the Roman fleet is larger, the Egyptian fleet raises its oars and surrenders. At that point, Antony and Cleopatra have lost, it's just a matter of time, and Octavian moves in towards the city. Antony organizes some resistance. Cleopatra decides the time is up. So she goes to her mausoleum and she walls herself in and prepares to commit suicide. Antony hears about this, realizes the situation is lost, and he falls on his sword. But he doesn't die. They pick him up, they tell him that Cleopatra is still alive, and they take him to the mausoleum. The mausoleum is sealed up and he gets hauled into uh, the mausoleum uh, to join her. And there, in the mausoleum, he dies in Cleopatra's arms. Two closing questions, Richard. What's known, if anything, about um, Mark Antony's wife, Octavia, back in Rome, if they were still married at that point, and any heirs that Mark Antony would have had? And the other uh, question is, and it might be an interpretive answer. It might be a spot where we can um, complete. Um, why do you think if Mark Antony and Cleopatra knew the war was lost, they uh, didn't uh, they didn't leave Alexandria and try to go and build a civilization somewhere else? Uh, 
Octavia, after the divorce, returns to Rome. Uh, she doesn't remarry. Uh, she brings up her children with Mark Antony. They had children together. Uh, she becomes a prominent figure around the social life of Rome. She helps her brother. Um, she um, helps build buildings in the city, decorates buildings. She's a really quite prominent Roman, Roman figure until the end of her life. Um, uh, Cleopatra and Antony, that's an interesting question. Uh, could they have fled? And we are, we are really on the edge of the known world, though. Where are they going to go? Uh, the known world for, for these people is the Mediterranean. Now, they could have headed south, one supposes, gone outside of Egypt, but what would they have lived on? How would they have resourced themselves? They didn't have the power, they didn't have the wealth, they didn't have the connections. And who, who is to know whether those powers would have, would have sent them back anyhow in order to uh, gain uh, or, um, the favour of Octavian? Uh, you have to think that uh, at this point, Rome is the world power. It is a global superpower. There isn't that much which is external to Rome that the Romans knew about. There's Parthia, but of course the Parthians are the people that Antony had just defeated and had just, uh, and were clearly his enemies, are much more likely to negotiate with Octavian than they were to negotiate with Antony. There's nowhere to go. They are facing the inevitable in those years. Cleopatra eventually does try to negotiate with, with Octavian, but she is simultaneously preparing for her own suicide. So Octavian wants to bring her back eventually to Rome to show her off, to show that he's captured Cleopatra uh, and to make a great scene of his victory. She doesn't want that, clearly doesn't want that. And she finds a way, she's not really understood of poisoning herself and presents herself in her death, dressed as an Egyptian queen, rather than as a Roman captive. You are such a great storyteller, Richard. We covered a lot of ground uh, in under an hour here with this episode. Thanks for coming on the show again. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure to talk about Anthony and Cleopatra. So again, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Alston wrote, Rome's Revolution, Death of the Republic, and Birth of the Empire, and uh, Aspects of Roman History, 31 BC to AD 117. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Richard and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. It's a pleasure. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.